0: This morning we come to the very end of our series entitled Godly Grieving. This is part 7 and we're looking at Lamentations chapter 5 and as we consider the subject matter of this chapter, I want to ask a question to begin us this morning. Have you ever almost drowned? Now that's kind of puts us in a panic mode and or have you possibly ever choked on something and you thought that your life was over you were gasping for breath gasping for air and somehow by the grace of God you got out of you what was stuck in your throat or you somehow got your head above the water and the way you breathe at that moment is sort of how this chapter unfolds. The nice, neat, acrostic structure, the alphabetic structure of the previous four chapters vanishes in chapter 5. Here there is a desperate cry for the Lord to act on behalf of his people. You see that in verse 1. And it's followed by a horrific description of how Judah's sin had decimated everything about their life. That's kind of the choking or the drowning in the illustration. And you see that in verses 2 through 18. Following that is the object's been dislodged, so to speak. You've got your head above water. There's an affirmation of the Lord's absolute sovereignty. And you see that in verse 19. And then there is this final appeal in verses 20 through 22 that sort of seems like you've gone back under the water again. But there's a hint of hope, a hint that there's going to be a restoration. At the end of chapter 4, the lamenter found comfort in two basic things. First, the Lord would deal with with Babylon, and with Edom, the instruments he used to afflict Judah. The poet was finally able to rest in God's justice and entrust him to deal with her foes. Second, the lamenter came to realize that the punishment or discipline the Lord was administering upon uh, Judah would come to an end. It wasn't forever. And these things are instructive for you as well. Vengeance is God's property, and he has promised to repay those who do evil to you. You can count on him upholding the promise given thousands of years ago to Abraham, him who dishonors you, I will curse. For every wicked person who fights against you and refuses to repent of sin, God will take care of them. You needn't worry about it. Second, the punishment for your sins has been fully paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. It is impossible for you who are in Christ Jesus to ever experience divine condemnation. What you now receive for your sins is loving fatherly discipline that proves your acceptance with him and works to make you more like Christ and prepare you for spending eternity with him. With these truths in the heart of the lamenter, uh, he now turns and leads God's people in a corporate prayer to the Lord of the covenant, or a prayer on their behalf. Let's let's look at that, Lamentations chapter 5. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks, we are weary, we are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us, there is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill, and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased, our dancing has been turned to mourning, the crown has fallen from our head, woe to us, for we have sinned. For this our heart has become sick, for these things our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, for you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. This chapter begins with an appeal to the Lord to Remember all that has happened to his people and the disgrace that they are presently experiencing. When the Lord remembers in Scripture, I'm sure you're aware, the point is never that he has been absent-minded. It is the way the biblical writer reports that God is about to act, or a way of appealing to the Lord to act on your behalf. You may recall God remembering Noah in Genesis 8 and then causing the waters to abate. Or the Lord remembering Israel in Exodus 2 and raising up Moses to deliver them out of Egypt. This verse invites you also when dealing with shame and disgrace brought on by your sin and suffering from others to ask God to remember you, to act on your behalf. However, we can do better, as the Bible teaches us. The repeated appeal of lamentations is for God to look at how humiliating Judah's state had become. This emphasis is okay But it is one reason why Judah does not experience substantial relief in real time in light of her prayer. Ezekiel teaches us the proper emphasis and posture when praying after sinning or when suffering is different. Sin always brings shame and always brings disgrace. That is by God's design. The wages of sin is death, and sin is always an embarrassment and a shame. God wants you to seek your restoration not simply for your relief, but primarily for His glory. Doing so guarantees your relief. The Lord said through Ezekiel, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, when through you I vindicate my holiness. I will take you from the nations and gather you. In this passage, Ezekiel teaches the exiles that they will be restored, but that in so doing, God's great interest in restoring them is His own glory, His fame Among all nations, his earth being filled with the knowledge of his glory. When you seek God's glory and fame as the primary purpose of your personal restoration or the restoration of God's people from sin or suffering, you will by definition receive abundant comfort and relief personally. But if your primary purpose in prayer is your personal restoration and comfort as an end in themselves and not the glory of God, you will never experience true comfort or relief no matter how much you pray. When Jesus contemplated his own suffering for your sins and sought his and your restoration, he said, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. This is one of the missing features throughout Lamentations. Therefore, you must read this book in light of all of God's revelation, especially in light of what we see in Jesus Christ. When Job's friends eloquently Uh, give their thoughts about his sufferings, the Lord's response to their insights is, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly." For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. And so when we aim, whether it's speaking for God or speaking to God, we have to have the right posture, the right emphasis. It's the glory of God. It's the fame of God. It's the kingdom of God. The following 17 verses from Lamentations 5, 2 through 18 catalog the nightmare of suffering that Judah as a nation dealt with at the Lord's hand working through Babylon. They had no place to dwell. You see that in verse 2, their inheritance, the gift of their inheritance, their own houses were taken from them. Their family structure in the following verse was destroyed when the fathers were either killed or exiled. They had to pay to use their own property. Even basic things like water, they had to pay for that. They were pursued, it goes on to say, and they had no resting place. There was no rest for them. It was like they were back in Egypt, back in slavery again. They had to depend on their enemies to provide for them, depending on Egypt, depending on Assyria. Their society had been turned upside down with slaves ruling over top of them. Their life was at risk just to eat, and famine was always present. Jesus dealt with these extreme forms of suffering also at some level. He was cast out of his own land. He was rejected by his own people. He was abandoned by his own father. He was destitute of what he needed to survive. He was pursued, he was arrested, he had no place to rest his head except on the cross and in the tomb. Though a king, he was being lorded over by the Jews, mere slaves of Rome. Next, it says in Lamentations that Judah's women were raped and abused right in the streets. All security, was gone. The princes of Judah were publicly humiliated, hung up by their hands. The elders were disrespected. Young men who normally would serve in the military or in the temple were now subject to what was culturally, at the time, work for a housewife. Young boys worked like those Israel had conquered in the past. When Israel would go in and conquer a nation, they would take those people who were conquered and they would use them to be servants. But now the young boys of Israel themselves are in that position as slaves again. The old men who sat at the city gates, they gave up. The city of gate was where the older men sat and they discussed decisions and policies and how culture and society should work for the good of all. But they they left. They abandoned their post. All joy had disappeared. Judah's place of prominence was gone. Their crown had fallen to the ground. All their hope is, is being deferred, and their heart is sick. Their eyes are full of tears, because Mount Zion has become like a deserted wasteland. Again, we see these things in the sufferings of Christ. Jesus was stripped and paraded through the streets as a conquered and humiliated criminal. The Prince of Peace was publicly hung by his hands on the cross. He was despised and rejected by men. He was made to stagger under the load of his own wooden cross. He was cast out of the city gate, a man of sorrows, acquainted with mourning and grief. He was given a crown of thorns. Sin is devastating. How many of you have experienced or have seen others become wiped out by sin? Prominent people, successful churches, through one immoral choice, lose their place, lose their possessions, lose everything. A father makes an immoral decision and is exiled from his family, as if dead. And he leaves behind children whose lives have been decimated, who are now like orphans, a wife who has become like a widow, Sin leaves us all vulnerable in every way. No resting place. How many congregations have had to deal with public humiliation because of unrepentant sin? How about you? Do you have unrepentant sin that's decimating your life spiritually? Do you have joy, a reason to dance and sing? Or is your daily existence filled with stress and depression because of sin? Do you, like Judah, feel like your crown, your ability to reign with Christ and be on a mission with Jesus has fallen from your head because of sin? Do you feel more like sin has the upper hand than you experiencing real progress in holiness? and in advancing God's kingdom? Does your soul feel life and fire or despair and emptiness? Sin unconfessed and unrepentant leaves you lying in the dust, bleeding and gasping for air. This chapter ends with an affirmation of God's unwaving sovereignty, despite Judah's loss of everything. Sin takes it all away, but there is one who can bring you back. But you, O Lord, reign forever, the Lamenter says. Your throne endures to all generations. We know in Jesus Christ that that throne is a throne of grace. This chapter is a chapter of prayer. And we know that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of the living God, someone who can sympathize with every one of your weaknesses, who is touched, as it says, with the feeling of your infirmities. Because he's been tempted in every way, just as we have been yet without sin. And because of him, and because of that, You can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help you in your time of need. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. The Lord knows those who are his and he will never forsake those who seek him. Judah's crown fell But the Lord's crown was intact. The unchanging sovereignty of God is our only hope. Everything in life and around us might be collapsing, but the Lord does not change. He is in control when everything comes undone. When Jesus was crowned with thorns, it was only 72 hours before he would be crowned with glory and authority in every single place, your suffering is the path to a deeper experience of Christ's reign in your life and through your life if, in your suffering, you entrust yourself to Him. Even when you suffer because of your sin, the hardship of discipline you experience is meant to make you more holy and thus more useful to the Lord who rules through you. In verse 20, Judah asked the Lord, Why? Why? Twice. These questions expose a failure to discern the sickness of their sinful condition. It's good to ask questions, but when you suffer because of your sin, Do you look for a quick remedy, a fast restoration? Early in this book, the poet said it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. We like quick fixes and fast recoveries, but we, we pray for that all the time, don't we? A speedy recovery, and we should pray for that. But it is more often that you learn of the depth of your sin and the glory of God's grace when you are forced to see and confront the horror of what your sin has done to you, to others, and to the world in which we live. You can see it today in the culture around you, and you cannot point the finger at anyone more than you pointed at yourself. Everybody is complicit in the corruption that's in our culture. No one needs Jesus more than you do. and No one needs Jesus less than you. Often we don't realize just how filthy our sins are. In this verse, you don't hear Judah's sobered hatred for her sin. You don't hear real brokenness and contrition because God has been offended. Jeremiah gets it right when he says, I struck my thigh, I was ashamed, and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Peter got it right when he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Remember the prodigal? I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember David? Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Job said, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The thing that distinguishes these examples from Judah in Lamentations is a clear understanding that I am not worthy to even be in the presence of the Lord. Judah is trying to return to the Lord's presence without a clear sense that they have no business in the Lord's presence. One essential component of genuine repentance is a clear, paralyzing conviction that you are completely unworthy to be in God's holy, holy, holy presence. Isaiah felt it. Woe unto me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, dwelling in the presence of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. Your sin has earned you the right to be smoked and incinerated by God. And if you have not felt that and if his judgments have never made you shudder you don't understand the nature of your sin the nature of God's holiness and what's needed for your restoration. There is no reason for Judah to question why they were forgotten, why they are forsaken. It is because they had hated God. They had rejected Him and relentlessly made love to idols in place of Him. And now that they are reaping the wages of their sins, they are suddenly becoming more interested in God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Does your zeal for God ignite when you need to be forgiven and then slowly fade when you think you're okay? You want restoration because the guilt is too much for you to bear. But do you sense how out of place you are in God's presence? When is the last time you blushed with embarrassment because of your sin, found it impossible to raise your eyes heavenward, and were silenced by your iniquity? It is at this point, and it is when that happens, but you begin to see the disconnect between your sin and the holiness of God. And it is at this point that Judah begins to sense her impotence and spiritual poverty. If you look at verse 21, Judah says, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. In verse 21, there is an admission of divine sovereignty. The lamenter admits that the only way Judah will be restored to the Lord is if the Lord takes the initiative and brings her back. Jesus said, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Do you acknowledge when you pray that there is no possibility of you repenting and being restored to fellowship with the Lord Unless the Lord acts on your behalf? He will act. He will complete the good work that He has begun in you. You can guarantee that. But there is something very humbling to your pride and a catalyst to your restoration to acknowledge your need for God to change your heart. Jesus said, Without me, you can do nothing. It is like praying every prayer in Jesus' name. God is already disposed towards you. But it is helpful, is it not, to remind yourself each time you pray that the only reason you can approach and appeal is because of Jesus. That's a blessed acknowledgement. You are absolutely hopeless without him. In verse 22, a more exact translation Maybe you heard it when we read the passage of the first word is for, not unless. Uh, Judah is asking for restoration because the Lord rejected her and was angry with her. They were at their wits' end, at rock bottom. They remembered the psalmist who said, Who can stand before you when once? your anger is aroused there there is one who can jesus can stand before god when his angry when his ang- anger is aroused and he did stand before god he hung before god when god's anger was aroused because of your sin because of my sin because of the sin of humanity and he, he hung before God. He stood before God's anger, as it were, so that you can now stand before God when you've sinned and, again, proven your unworthiness to stand. You can stand because of the blood of Christ, because of the righteousness of Christ. When you admit your unworthiness to belong to the Lord, it is then you realize in Christ your right to be called a child of God. When you reckon with the evil in you, it is then that you recognize the absolute wonder of Jesus' redeeming love. When, like the prodigal, you understand your unworthiness to be God's child, to be called his son, to be called his daughter, it is at that very moment that he interrupts your confession of sin to affirm your adoption and to celebrate your return and repentance. Judah kept trying to hold on to her dignity and was so fixated on how could this be happening to her. She had an entitlement mentality that paralyzed her from experiencing at this point Fullness of God's grace. Don't fall into this trap. Your sin is worthy of death. And when you see this, you are now able to behold the one death, the death of Jesus, which alone qualifies you to live in communion with the Lord. When you see this, it's the resurrection of Christ Jesus that guarantees to you. A rich welcome into the holy, holy, holy presence of God. The presence before whom, like Paul says, no one can approach. But in Christ Jesus, he takes you by the hand and is able to present you faultless before his presence with exceeding great joy. And until then, he's able to keep you from stumbling. He's able to walk with you that even when you stumble, he comes back and picks you up. He never left you in reality. He never will. One day, you're guaranteed a rich welcome into the holy presence of God. And in his presence, as you know, there is a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We look forward to that wonderful day as we seek to walk with him this day. God bless you and keep you.